Hello, and welcome to the Content Minds. My name is Ryan Broderick. I recently got a new haircut. I'm not sure how I feel about it. So if I sound off this week, I'm sort of working through that psychologically at the moment. I'm Luke Bailey, and I've not had a haircut since 2014. All right, it's normal stuff. Okay, welcome to the Content Minds. This week, we're talking about Little Nas X and Little Nas X's ability to uh, basically absorb all of the tubes of the internet and use them as a content distribution channel. But first, before we get to that very, like, uh, would that be epistemology? Would that be like an epistemological conversation about Little Nas X? Uh, I don't think so, because I don't think that's, that's, that's not how that works. Hold on, wait, let me, let me Google what that word means. The theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods. Oh, yeah. Oh, in that case, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's a uh, it's an epistemological discussion of Lil Nas X. But before we get to that, um, Luke, how is the internet this week? I I was trying to look for a word for it, and I think I've decided it's like it's grumpy. Um, I mean, we have a specific yes. thing over here which I think has broken out from the internet, which I think is a problem, or or certainly, if not broken out from the internet, has captured it, which is the uh, discussion of whether or not Britain is racist. Oh, <laughs> I saw the those. The British Im- government today has released a report that has informed that we're not racist. Britain is not a racist country and its institutions are not in any way racist. So that's a relief. I saw some pictures of some bus ads that people had tweeted that said, like, Britain finds that Britain is not racist. Or it was maybe it was like a headline, I guess, like, a, like they're. Yeah. And that was. Uh, Incredible, an incredible image. <laughs> this is this comes this comes a, f- a few days after the uh, police reported that the police are not heavy-handed at all and were actually actually handled everything fine. Yeah, it's uh, it's wild how they can just push that around with a straight face. I mean, British people love studies. Like that's the thing that you guys really can't get enough of. Um, which is a gr- this wasn't even a study. This is a report. There's no studies in it. It's just it's just reporting on things. Oh, it's just it's a just report. Going through. There's no study. Yeah, it's like th- it's like 300 pages. Actually, it's not even that. It's like 75 pages of just of, of things. Can you imagine trying to discuss how racism works in the UK in under in under 100 pages? I mean, I think you need much more than 100 pages. But can you imagine just doing it in under 100? Uh, that's a uh, well, I mean, it, 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 I'm surprised it got it out that long because it turns out there's no racism in the UK. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's good. It's a relief. It's a, it's a real Speaking relief. of the UK and uh, its love of studies, I've been dying to talk to you about this thing that I saw going around on Twitter this week. Have you seen the Prince William bald man study thing? Uh, yeah. Um, that's sure as a, that is sure as a thing that, that happened. So, okay. So if, you ha- if, if you're listening to this and you don't know what I'm talking about, Dan Barker, uh, he's a Twitter user who tweeted this out um, last week. Uh, basically went through a whole thread of how it seems like a PR firm working for a hair replacement company took Google search data, but like basic Google search data, packaged it as a study, gave it to the Sun newspaper who then had their version copied up into the Independent who then claimed it was a google-led study sort of so 
we get a lot of these. If you work on a news desk, you get hundred of these. Like my email is unusable. I have one hundred sixty thousand unread emails. Like, and that's after about in about two and a half years, three years, I've gathered gathered that number of unread emails, which is awful. Uh, and so most of these I don't even look at. That's that's not even like my other inbox. That's just my main inbox. Like all the junk mail that goes to the other inbox is not included in that counts. I get like hundreds of emails and most of them are, are useless and I don't read them. Uh, but they include stuff like this, which is a, a corporate run study in intended to promote a product. So, you know, it's um, men called Steve are most likely to have red cars or whatever, and they're selling red cars. And that's kind of it. So all they're trying to do is get their product out there in the world somehow uh, and make it, yeah, make people talk about it in some some sort of context. Right. And what a PR company did, broadly legitimately, for a uh, hair transplant company. Which uh, which neither Luke or I need. We both have, you've no. never seen us, but we have incredibly thick, strong, giga-chad hair. Neither of us. We have, hair, we have hair all over our heads. Yeah, we have we have full heads of hair, unlike Prince yeah. William. <laughs> yeah. And what they did was they searched for the phrase Prince William and then next to it, sexy, and then just counted the results. I have that, I have that tab open on my browser at all times. Yeah, of course. And I'm constantly refreshing it to see how many people on Google are talking about Prince William being sexy. But it means that it's it's just an entirely meaningless thing because they weren't also they weren't searching for sexy Prince William. No, they were searching for Prince William separately anywhere on the page. They just needed sexy to appear. Like it could be, the search results could include, I drew this picture of ugly Prince William kissing the beautiful sexy Sonic the Hedgehog on DeviantArt. Well, the the the, the results is that could no wait that. confirm that that's correct. That w- that is correct. <laughs> But more to the, more to the point, it could also include uh, a story about Prince William going to a uh, I don't know a, a a charity that heals horses or whatever. But it happens to appear on, let's say, the Sun or the Mirror somewhere else on that page. If there is another link to another story that uses sexy on it, and it's the Sun or the Mirror, and that's the sort of thing they use a lot, that would count. Oh yeah, you could be like. Famous racehorse, sexy dancer, put down after being injured for, for related stories, Prince William is bald. Yes, that would do it. And you wouldn't even mention he was bald, just Prince William. So it's essentially a measure of Prince like, William is kissing been... Sonic the Hedgehog in this new NFT going viral. Yes, entirely unrelatedly, around the corner, they're talking about a sexy horse on the same site, and that counts. Well, I didn't say the, so these, I didn't say the horse was sexy. I just said that the horse's name, Sexy Dancer, which no, is a normal need, horse. No, but we needed sexy to be in those. Obviously, you know, but the point. Okay. Is, yeah, it's, it becomes this uh, like thing where it's like, oh, it's a Google study, and it's like it's not a Google study. It's not anything. It's, it's not even nothing. a study. It's literally nothing. <laughs> it is. It is someone who is. It's someone who is probably a twenty-two-year-old who is six months into their first job as a PR person, and they're being like, "Hey, we need you to go viral," and they're just furiously coming up with things. And they're like, "People talking about Prince William. He's bald. We don't think that stops people being bald. Therefore, we're going to encourage people to think of Prince William as being sexy and bald, and that's not what we want to be like because you don't want to be sexy. You want hair." Unlike this bald man who is sexy without hair, you should have hair. Right. It doesn't even make sense. So Dan Barker in his thread, um, he makes the point that it was was like maybe like a psyop for baldness. So it was like, it's like, oh, we're going to make everybody angry by saying Prince William is sexy, even though we all know he's not. 
And then it's going to cause people to come to our site and want to not be bald anymore because they don't want to look like Prince William. I don't know if I believe that. That seems like that seems like pretty smart. Like that seems like I don't, but that's too smart. It seems like five D chess kind of stuff. I'm not sure if they really thought that far ahead. I think it was more just like Prince William's this, trending. This is throwing he's this bald. Is throwing stuff at the wall. Right. Exactly. This is like four chan stuff. It's not like the mastermind four chan. It's like a bunch of like idiots. Okay. But one hilarious like very stupid result of this and this is like so typical and i feel like this sums up like our entire modern age it is <laughs> oh now who's been watching out of gus yeah uh, oh yeah before we get too deep into this week's episode i have not only seen the newest six hour adam curtis documentary can't get you out of my head i then also got completely hammered with my friend jeff and made him watch hypernormalization with me so I have double dipped into the Curtis Pond this week. So I am thinking about how systems are letting us all down. So back to the bald thing. The Prince William story caused a bunch of Stanley Tucci fans to get angry. And so then they're now leading a campaign to declare that Stanley Tucci is the most handsome bald man. And I feel like that's everything. That's all of modern culture in one thing. Yeah, just people arguing over who is the sexiest bald man with no one, with thin air. <laughs> with 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 just with just like understanding how a machine works wrong. Yeah. It would it's 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 not dissimilar from like cargo cults, where like they would see like a Coca-Cola bottle and be like, Oh, this came from heaven. More to the point, they're now at war with the neighboring tribe who yes. saw a Pepsi bottle. Yes, it's like yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um Speaking of becoming insane due to machines, we should probably talk about the the Facebook thing. Yeah, we should talk about the Facebook thing. That was, I mean, Facebook loves releasing an extremely long blog. And today they released another extremely long blog explaining how all of the people that Facebook has radicalized, it was kind of their fault. They had it coming. I think the important it takes two to tango one, is the title of the blog. Yes, but I think we're, we're missing one important thing here, which is that it was written by Nick Clegg who is basically using Facebook's newsroom as a substack at this point. Like like the man yeah. the man is using official Facebook comms to blog all the goddamn time. He can't stop doing it. It's kind of incredible how much he cannot stop posting. And every time he does, everyone's like that wasn't a very good idea, was it? That was kind of a, that was kind of a pretty bad take. Turns out it doesn't matter. It, you he they should just start doing an Amazon and just be mean to people. Uh, yeah, just, just make up fake, it'll be fine. make fake AI people and then harass each other. Although I have a theory that that was a psyop, but like, I don't want to get too deep into that one. Cause that's like a whole other thing. I think sure. I don't, I don't know if I buy anyways. Um, I mean, it is weird. So uh, for Americans listening to this, I feel like it's really important to understand who Nick Clegg is. Okay. Yeah. Can you give us like a tight five on the Lib Dems? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with change UK. And then... <laughs> no. So, so. I think I think that Nick Clegg was briefly deputy prime minister of the UK. Uh, he was the leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, which was a combination of the old Liberal Party and the Social Democrat Party, who were split from Labour. But they were broadly a centre-left party who, since since his departure, became a pretty much one-note anti-Brexit party, which now Brexit has happened has left them in a bit of a hole. But yeah. Nick Clegg, him, which 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 American politician would you say best exemplifies the Lib Dems? Pete Buttigieg. I mean, it feels like that because Nick Clegg was also like kind of young and didn't have a lot for him. But it's actually probably someone like 
um, John Delaney. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, you are there. Thank you for, for being present. Yeah, it's like, like, because like Pete Buttigieg is like kind of like rat-like efficient, whereas the Lib Dems are like, they're just hanging out. Like, they're just like, yeah. they're they're like if the Labour Party was like coming on too strong, you know? They have they have no ideas and they're happy to talk to you about them. <laughs> <laughs> um, one time, but like, wait, 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 one time, Luke and I had uh, were commissioned to make a video where like there was a human personification of each like political party, and I couldn't think and like I had to help write it and like I am not someone who's very good at like UK politics, so I had to figure out like how to like show the Lib Dems as a person, and the only thing I could think of was we had someone ride into frame on a skateboard while vaping and, like, spinning a fidget spinner. Yeah, and I don't really know why. I thought it was funny, <laughs> but I don't think that's what the Lib Dems are anymore. No. <laughs> at the time, no, I think it was at the time they were trying very hard to, like, tap into the youth vote around Brexit because they still thought that they were, like, the Obama hope party for the UK. Right, but I'm pretty sure at that time they were being led by Vince Cable, who at the time was 80. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, the moral of the story there is like, I don't know anything about UK politics. <laughs> but but Nick Clegg himself was, you know, the idea was he is a British liberal, which means he protects civil liberties and all those sorts of stuff while also thinking the NHS is actually okay. Um I mean, I think a lot about like different things that he's done and then try and compare it to what he's done at Facebook. So one of the things that he did was... Uh, he fought against the retention of the data of people accused of rape. Uh, going, moving, moving, like, toned a little bit here. Yeah. But this is a very live issue in one of the 2008 by-elections. Um, but yeah, he, he kind of fought against it, like, he on the basis of, like, civil liberties and people should have control over their own data and it shouldn't be owned by large, like, by, by government ob- organizations anyway he now works for facebook putting out stuff that is just mealy-mouthed propaganda for the most sophisticated data harvesting operation and personality control systems that have ever existed and it's absolutely wild someone on twitter that i follow um basically said that nick clegg now sort of functions as the head of facebook's foreign office yeah effectively he's he's kind of like the guy that has to deal with all of the non-American stuff, which is a lot more nuanced than the conversation I think in America, because America just doesn't have like a very good grasp on any of these things when it comes to privacy or data retention or human rights or, you know, limiting the power yeah, exactly. of co- so corporations. He is, he, he is trying to explain the concept of, of, He's trying to explain the, what Americans think about data privacy to British people and be like, this is actually normal now. We're, we're okay with this. Right. So let's, let's, let's jump to what he actually like wrote. Today. It's really long. It's super long like, and dumb. Everyone needs an editor. Whatever Glenn Greenwald says. Oh, yeah. This is my favorite part, actually. Because this is sort of like saying that like if Facebook didn't exist – Someone else would invent Facebook, so we should be allowed to run Facebook. And the quote is, some critics seem to think that social media is a temporary mistake in the evolution of technology. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, And that once we've come to our collective senses, Facebook and other platforms will collapse and we'll all revert to the previous modes of communication. Uh, Well, once again, like, sounds sounds kind of (laughs) nice. This is a profound misreading of the situation. As inaccurate as the 
December 2000 Daily Mail headline declaring the internet may just be a passing fad. Even if Facebook ceased to exist, social media won't, can't be uninvented. The human impulse to use the internet for social connection is profound. And that's yeah. like that's like the most say like that's like the most coherent point he's trying to make in this. And then he ends the whole thing by saying the internet needs new rules designed and agreed by democratically elected institutions and technology companies need to make sure their products and practices are designed in a responsible way that takes it that takes into account their potential impact on society. That starts but by no means ends with putting people, <laughs> not machines, more firmly in charge. That's gibberish. Like that is just mealy-mouthed garbage. That's what that is. Yeah. And I I I find the the idea that they can, he can set the whole thing up and be like, well, the thing is, is the reason that people have been radicalized, the reason that, you know, everyone's miserable because of social media is kind of their own fault. It's basically that one title, the creator tweet, where it's like, uh, just close your laptop. Used... Yeah, just close your eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cyberbullying is not real. Just close your eyes kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's essentially what he's saying. But also that, you know, if you don't close your eyes, it's not their fault. They've designed a thing to be as addictive as possible and require you to spend as much time as possible. And that's not their fault if you fall for that. Wait, no, Luke, Facebook's right. If their company's proprietary algorithm accidentally kickstarts a genocide in your country, just close your eyes and go outside. Like, it's fine. Just <laughs> unplug the computer. It's all done. That that works totally fine. Yeah. Um, I think, so something that I... I again, have been thinking about a lot because this is the idea that Nick Clegg can look at this and be like, actually, this is fine. Um, so there is a, a story which I don't think I've ever talked to you about, but about uh, Stephen Timms. I am not familiar with Stephen Timms. Okay, Stephen Timms, a British politician, uh, was stabbed uh, but survived. And there is a basically a record of the, trans the transcription of what his attacker said to the police like that that is that that record is public yeah and i'm just going to read a few bits of this out and like trigger warning this is quite disturbing what year was this it? i'm going to ask you that afterwards oh okay uh so the police officer says uh what did you think was going to happen once you carried out your intentions uh i thought that i would get arrested or maybe i i would like get killed or something um what did you think about getting killed then i wanted to die why i wanted to be a martyr uh why is that because that's the best way to die. Who told you that? It's an Islamic teaching. Where did you learn that? It's in the Quran. I learned from listening to lectures as well. What lectures are they? By Anwar Alawaki. How did you find out about, about him? On the internet. If you go on YouTube, there's a lot of videos there. And if you just do a search, they just come up. I wasn't searching for him. I just came across him. I used to watch videos that people used to put up, like about how they came as Muslim. Um, after you left uni, how did you... Uh, find these uh what happened in november i downloaded a full set of uh his lectures how long do you reckon they are more than a hundred hours have you watched all those lectures yes how often you were going on the internet first i was doing like two a day uh but then i started back up again because i needed to finish watching them uh and then there's a lot more stuff like this is a this is a cut i'm doing a kind of cut down version because it is it is relatively long but then he is sorry he the policeman asks about you know, where did you come come across these? When did you watch these YouTube videos? And the the attacker, and this is a woman, in fact, uh, says uh, that probably wouldn't have been a couple of weeks ago, like some point in April. Was that before you bought the knives? It would have been before. Uh, how soon after watching that video you decide to put things into action? It would probably have been like a few days after. So that is someone... 
being radicalized in real time on YouTube to attack and stab an MP. Would you like to guess what year this was? I think the tell here is the downloading. And so I'm going to say probably 2012 or 13. It was 2010. Okay. Yeah. So this is a full decade ago. Yeah. I mean, this is... It is a full decade ago that people are being radicalized online. And Nick Clegg was in parliament at this time. He was the leader of a party. This was right around election time when he was becoming deputy prime minister of the UK. So this has been happening the entire time. And for some reason, he's now going there and being like, kind of her fault. Yeah. Well, the money's good um like that's that's just what it is my like my like thing where it's like there's something like there's change coming like there's something coming i i have this suspicion that like facebook is is like laying groundwork to do something new and i don't know i i don't know what that new thing is i don't know if it's a new direction if it's an algorithm tweak if it's new tabs if it's part of their substack killer like i don't know What's on the horizon, but there's something, the company's obviously gearing up to do something. I've been wondering if this could mean the death of the newsfeed, like if they've been able to like crunch the numbers and say like, oh, actually we, we don't really need a central feed anymore. I don't know what it is, but it feels very strange to me that they would have Nick Clegg post a blog update basically saying the thing that they've tried very hard not to say for many years, which is like our algorithm doesn't really matter and it doesn't really work. And that's, I think I've talked about this on this show and I think I've definitely written about this before as well, which is like Facebook is stuck in this problem where they can't say really that their algorithm can't radicalize you because if they were to say that it would also say to advertisers that their algorithm can't convince anyone to buy anything. Well, this has always been the entire point that Facebook is incredibly powerful and needs to be just powerful enough to sell to advertisers and then, but not quite powerful for it to be a problem. Right. But every time they've done a study, they did the study on mood where they just attempted, took like a bunch of people and like split test them to see if they could make their mood change. And they discovered they could. Right. And then they said, well, that's not a problem because we just won't do that and it's fine. Right. So, like, that makes me think that if Nick Clegg's out here basically saying, like, our algorithm really can't can't convince you to do anything you don't want to do, then they've got to have something up their, like, sleeve or something in their back pocket that's, like, on the way. Because they're, they're – they're, and I think it's also part of the antitrust stuff that's happening in America right now. I think there's a lot of scrutiny on how the machine works and I think – they wouldn't be putting Nick Clegg human crash test dummy for their company out <laughs> in front if they didn't have something good behind it, you know? I mean, I, I think I think you're probably right, the antitrust stuff. I think that's probably a bigger part of it because I think that the algorithm will continue to exist in some form. Otherwise, why defend it? Which is still what they're doing effectively. Um, but the antitrust stuff might be, might be quite real. And I, I can imagine them saying like, Actually, people can choose what to see, therefore it doesn't matter, and therefore we're not too powerful because people have choice and they can opt out. They don't opt out because why would they? Uh, you don't opt out of the thing giving you dopamine hits, but they could opt out and therefore it's not a problem. Yeah, we're fine. We're we're just friends. You know, we're all friends here, you know? Okay, so look, a lot of people have been radicalized, but we all know that the the true person radicalizing people is Lil Nas X. That's right. Who is driving all of our children to Satanism, and no one is talking about it. Let's talk about the new Satanic Panic. All right, take it to the sting. Last week, Little Nas X 
released a new single called Montero, Call Me By Your Name. The video features Lil Nas X kissing a human snake, being put on trial, being sent to hell, giving the devil like a sexy dance, like a lap dance, then killing the devil and becoming the devil himself. And most American conservatives were like, this is cool. This is fine. I like this. That sounds right. That sounds normal. (laughs) Episode done. No, everyone lost their fucking mind. And what I want to talk about this week is what Little Nas X is essentially doing to the structure of the internet. And so I guess to start things off, Luke, how good at the internet do you think Little Nas X actually is? He might be the best person who is not... he might be the most famous person who is very, very good at the internet, who is not famous for being good at the internet. Yes. I would say he might be one of the first, like, mega talented, mega successful artists to be able to fully use the internet as, like, a macro medium, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Many, many famous people have been good at a single aspect of the internet. Donald Trump was good at Twitter. Chrissy Teigen was also good at Twitter. Taylor Swift is great at Tumblr. Taylor Swift is great at Tumblr. Uh, many, many celebrities are good at Instagram. Uh, but no one has the understanding of like quite how to get inside what the internet's doing in the way that Lil Nas X does. Yes, I think that's exactly it. His So to, to, to go all the way back, what I think is really interesting about the way he did Old Town Road is that Old Town Road... He bought off like a beat factory for, I think, like $50, maybe 100 bucks or something. And he yeah. released it and it was okay, but people weren't super into it. But it was like doing well on TikTok because it had like that TikTok kind of sound. The like the like half trap beat sound that like works well with your hands moving and stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I don't know if this part was deliberate or if this was sort of like that accidental lightning in a bottle thing. But the fact that you have this, like, you know, young black guy doing, like, a country-style song kind of kicked up a bunch of conservative outrage. And that's what led to Billy Ray Cyrus jumping on the track, which then turned it into the, like, mega success it was. But he didn't stop there. He kept making remixes. He made remixes with the Walmart yodeling kid. He made remixes with BTS. And he sort of, instead of letting the song die, he, he kept creating new versions of it or morphing it or, or keeping it in a conversation with itself and with culture to the point where I was surprised to find out that he hasn't ever released an album before he's released six songs <laughs> and then he released a Christmas song, which he plays Santa, uh, which I love that song. And n- now he's about to release a full length. And he even tweeted uh, last week, or I think over the weekend, he was like, I've had nine months to get ready for this. Like I'm not going anywhere. And so he's created this cultural object, uh, I guess, is the easiest way to describe what it is because it's it's tweets, it's TikToks, it's a music video, it's a song, it's Fox News segments, it's think pieces, it's it's this it's 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 the Suez Canal theory of media, basically. <laughs> it is, uh, and it's also fascinating because he he actually reminds me of a lot of people we used to work with who were you know innately very creative but who also it kind of didn't matter how much people yelled at them and how much it distanced it from them because fundamentally they understood that this is all a joke yeah and no one else does like tucker carlson doesn't actually really understand this is a joke he's not totally in on it he he's pretty sure it is but he's not totally in on it before i use this word again uh 
I have had listeners complain to me, so I'm going to pronounce this correctly. It's all KFAB. <laughs> I typically pronounce it KFAB, and people get very mad at me. It is all KFAB. It's all wrestling. And yes, you're right. This idea. So it reminds me of something that um, the comedian and like online content creator Jesse McLaren told me once, which is that the internet is inherently nonlinear. So if you wanted to make something go viral, it has to be consumed from every possible endpoint. It has to be memeable. It has to be discourseable. It has to be um, able to be consumed within a larger context, but also consumed on a micro context. It, it, it has to be something that can exist in the past, the present, the future, all at once. It's, it's a four-dimensional way of thinking, as opposed to something like a TV show, which can only really be watched like start to finish or a movie. A really good example of this uh, is the Mike Ginn tweet, uh, which is my T-shirt saying I'm not involved in human trafficking is prompting an awful lot of questions answered by my T-shirt. Yes, exactly. Because, and I think this purely because he tweeted today, like every time people start retweeting the, the T-shirt tweet, it means something really good's happened. Yes. Well, so, not something good, but like something, yeah, that, something's that happened. Point, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no, there is this. Same with the milkshake duck tweet. If it starts going again, you're like, Something's happened. I don't know what, where, but something's happened. Something has, something has milkshaked. Yeah. And like, actually, milkshake duck is like a very good example of this, where the, the milkshake duck is essentially a way of processing like temporality online because what it's doing is it's saying like, oh, this thing that you like in the present, well, the way it was in the past now affects your ability to consume it in the present and in the future. Yeah. And it's like this, like this timelessness, but not, not timeless in the sense of like, this will be able to be enjoyed forever because that's definitely not true of like planking or nyan cat or something, but this like timelessness, time, timelessness, this timelessness. No, but not timelessness like Casablanca. Timelessness like like this. This exists. We're looking, for, we're, we're looking for a word that's like outside of time, so atemporal, probably atemporal. I guess atemporal media. Um, where, you know, like if, if 10 years from now, someone finds a, you know, little Nas X's Montero and likes the beat and rips it out and puts it in their own song, like it will continue on that content trail in a way that like a lot of older media was never considered before, uh, to the yeah. point where like, I was really on Monday trying to write about this song and he was releasing extended mixes of the song <laughs> as I was writing about it. And in actually a, a very good example of early example of this was that, um, wasn't it was life of pablo so okay i'm glad you brought this up because you and i i think you and i spent like close to six months talking about life of pablo and like <laughs> only talking about life of pablo so if you're not familiar life of pablo was kanye west's uh album two albums ago and it w wasn't so much a album as much as it was like a prolonged content cycle of like live producing the album via updates and like patches to the point where like gun to my head i probably could not tell you what is on the finished version of the album because i heard it in so many different ways to the point where you and i would go to parties and be like oh new pa new life of pablo dropped <laughs> yeah like a new oh he's redone this track and you couldn't be exactly sure which version you were listening to because it was like a version you downloaded or version you were streaming and there was kind of like replacing it as it went and he was just like remastering it yeah it was it was really interesting but that's exactly it's exactly the same thing, yeah, where it's just, it's not quite fixed, it's immutable. Right, like, 
It's sorry. It's mutable, not immutable. A temporal and mutable. It's fungible yes. also. Um, <laughs> it is not non fungible. But this idea of like f- content that can be consumed via a feed, but not just consumed that way, but also made better by it. And I think that's what Lil Nas X has figured out to almost a science because to experience Montero, the song as just a song is not nearly as interesting as consuming it via the music video, but the music video is not nearly as interesting as consuming the music via video via the memes. But the memes are also part of a discourse cycle that includes like right-wing outrage which also includes like gay empowerment. And so the entire thing creates this like giant, like cluster of content that has to, that needs itself to make sense. Yeah. Basically in after the pandemic is done, we're all going to be crying in the club to Tucker Carlson clips. I mean, so little Nas X has threatened to sample one of the pastors that was like denouncing him. And I'm kind of excited <laughs> to see if that happens. I didn't know who little Nash X was. Little thug, whoever, I had no idea who he was. We was riding this morning, Hudson said, well, you know who, what made him famous? I said, well, he said, you know, he was that horses song. Got my horses and whatever that song. I was like, man, that song's got a cool beat. I'll never be able to listen to it again. Bunch of devil worshiping, wicked nonsense. Pentagram wearing on your Nike tennis shoe 666. You think I'm going to stand for that? You've lost your mind. You tell little Nash X I said so. Bunch of Satanism, bunch of wickedness, bunch of devilism, bunch of demonism, bunch of psychotic wickedness. I, um, I have a list here of some of the things that little Nas X has said to conservatives on Twitter. Um, and I wanted to read a few because they're really good. Do it. You're doing a dramatic reading? <laughs> I could not even attempt to, but I'm just going to do my best <laughs> to, 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 to convey them via the medium of audio. Uh, so Caitlin Bennett, the uh, gun girl who uh, peed in a diaper or something. I forget like I forget how she got associated with diapers, but she's like the diaper gun girl now. I think it was just a joke about it. I don't think the diapers were actually involved. Hold on, hold on. Quick aside before we get started here. How did Caitlin Bennett get become synonymous with diapers because like there's so many conservatives who are now part of diapers stuff that i can't like keep them track so charlie kirk he did sit in a diaper that's for sure no 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 it wasn't i wasn't charlie kirk it was a turning point usa thing like someone from turning point usa pretended to be like was like mocking uh snowflakes by hanging out in a diaper being like your babies you look like this that's right at which point everyone went like, you're, you're wearing a diaper, man. Oh, I'm sorry. Caitlin Bennett was the campus coordinator and president of the Talking Points USA chapter that did the diaper thing. Oh. And so when it went... So she was close to it. She, I, I guess they were her diapers, yeah. And so she yeah. resigned and claimed that she had th- been thrown under the bus for diaper gate. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, apparently, she said that Charlie Kirk did reach out to her personally and was like, keep up the triggering. Good job on, you know, with the diaper stuff. <laughs> okay. So back, back to little Nas X. Okay. So, um, Caitlin Bennett, uh, screenshot that little Nas X had blocked her and she wrote, it's weak like these that I'm thankful to be blocked by little Nas X. And then he quote tweeted her and wrote, I still see your tweet shitty pants. And then she wrote, <laughs> do you see your dad? And he wrote, yep. And I might fuck yours. <laughs> <laughs> and then Nick Adams, who's like a conservative guy, you know, you know, 
conservative. There's a lot of them. Guy. Clowns like Little Nas X and Cardi B couldn't last 30 seconds on a debate stage with the likes of Candace Owens. And little why, would they, why would they? Why are they on a debate stage? Yeah, like, they're not. Like, that's not what they do. I don't think Candace Owens could, like, you know, produce a song as well. We're not. We don't have to do this. Um, and then little, little Nas X wrote, you can't last 30 seconds in bed with your wife. Uh, and then he got into a massive fight with the governor of South Dakota, uh, Christy Nome, who is like an idiot. And she wrote, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Matthew sixteen twenty six. And he wrote, shoot a child in your mouth while I'm riding Montero 108. <laughs> and then someone just randomly, uh, I have this other one saved. You're riding Satan in your new music video. You're proud of that? And he just wrote, yes. <laughs> and i mean this this all comes back to the fundamental thing about lil Nas x which is that he is a barb like he is a Nicki minaj stan okay who was yeah let's okay let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about little Nas x's life before the idea of little Nas x so okay yeah. Can you explain what a barb is and what a tweet decker is? Because Little Nas X was both of these things before he became Little Nas X. Well, a barb's pretty straightforward. A barb is just a Nicki Minaj stan. And, you know, all stans have their like, own slight things that they're good at. The barb stans tend to be quite mean. Like that's They're really probably the dude. They're yeah. fucking mean. Like, they're like, not yeah. crazy and violent like Lana Del Rey stans. And they're not, like, manic and, and like, you know petty like taylor swift stands but they're mean and they're clever and they're organized <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's actually the uh, velociraptors from jurassic park <laughs> i think the barbs are similar they will stalk you and try to kill you in a kitchen they are yeah. they're very well organized and they're and they're part of the generation that like lady gaga stands are part of where they yeah aren't just using dms to organize they're also on message boards and they're on blogs like they're part of the the older generation of pop stands, uh, which I think is something that like gets lost sometimes when we talk about these like groups, because like K-pop stands, they don't have the same like blog infrastructure as like Barb's do. I want to say, yeah, yeah, uh, no, they they definitely don't. Barb's I felt like were much more Twitter yeah, focused, yeah, right. And then there was also this this culture of of, of tweet decking, which honestly in my head I thought was like twenty thirteen, but was actually around twenty eighteen. Like this was really tweet deck. Yeah, tweet decking was oh, became a thing. I know why you think this. Tweet decking has been a thing for like a decade. Tweet decking didn't get a name until 2018. Right. Okay. Maybe. But like when tweet decking became a thing, it was so initially it became it was like an organized thing and it felt much more organized and there were a limited number of people doing it and then suddenly everyone was doing it and it got wide scale and that's when Lil Nas X was involved in it. But broadly, tweet decking is doing generically relatable or funny tweets that are pretty much always plagiarized from somewhere else, but then handing them off through a network of teens who you work with. Basically, I'm saying teens because it's usually teens, but it could be the old people as well, um, by essentially selling retweets to each other. So it's they're exchanging retweets in order to get those generic things out to a wide portion of people. They then get a load of retweets, they get a load of followers, uh, and then you make money. Right. Actually, I'm not 100% sure how the make money bit worked. I assume they sold 
uh, those lights that put star, uh, star constellation on, on your ceiling and vibrators and stuff. No, the thing that yeah. uh, that gets missed is that there. I interviewed these guys like in 2013, people who are doing this and making tons of money. And I saw their bank statements and stuff. What they're doing is they're partnering with brands and tweeting out stuff that isn't marked as an ad. So it might be a projector. It might be dildos. It might be like even a movie trailer or something. And they're using viral content that they're taking from all over the internet. And then they are building, they're taking some of the money you make from that system and paying other people to promote them. So it's almost like a pyramid scheme within the structure of Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and little Nas X was like a very casual kind of tweet ticker. He wasn't like one of these like insane drop shipping teens that like makes a million dollars and like does like hustle posts on YouTube or something. Yeah, he was doing it for fun. Yeah. But again, but it does speak to his understanding of the internet, understanding of like how viral cycles work and how these these links are formed. Exactly. There is there is a cultural thing where Little Nas X understands that what he's making has to be something that can be utilized by others in a network. Yeah, but also thinks that it is a, I don't know what the best way to put it. He also thinks of this stuff as ephemeral. Yeah, because it is. I mean, it's, it's a meme. It's, but, 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 and that's not to say that like the song is something he doesn't care about or um, like it's disposable because he's been, you know, I will give him credit for being like expertly good at being a troll and like fighting with right wingers while also with the other hand saying like, no, but like I am a gay man. I do care about what's in this song. This is important to me. Um, But he has like a sense of humor about it that I think is very impressive. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, He had one really good tweet that I wanted to read because I feel like it sums up the, the whole dynamic, but I guarantee you it's going to take me forever to find it because he just cannot stop posting. <laughs> but this is it. You know, if, if you, if you want to be a, a viral celebrity, you got to be constantly posting. Yeah. Like he, like he understands, he understands that the internet is built from a visual language. So, you know, d- down to the point where like he shared a behind the scenes of like, what he wanted for the video. And he said that he used like a Patrick from SpongeBob meme to like pick out the frame that he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Like he understands that it all has to be, you know, like, like, and it taps into like our understandings of like camp and drag culture as well, which are just visual languages. And I think, and I suspect that's why a lot of them, like I, th- I feel like that's a, l- a lot of the reason why like drag culture is so popular on the internet because like it is an aesthetic. It is like communicating ideas and history via aesthetics. Yes, yes. This is probably I think for anyone listening it is very clear that I've watched a lot of Adam Curtis documentaries this week, <laughs> but like <laughs> I do think this is true. Oh, here's the tweet. Okay, here's the tweet I was looking for, uh, and I feel like this sums up like his entire vibe, which was I'll be honest. All of this backlash is putting an emotional toll on me. I try to cover it with humor, but it's getting hard. My anxiety is higher than ever right now. And stream call me by your name on all platforms now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's good because like he he like I don't have the sense that he's inauthentic. And I don't know if that's true. I've never I, I I have 
very briefly interacted with him once several years ago now, like two years ago. But I don't get the sense that he is inauthentic. And I don't think that he's also like Trump either. Like he's like a different thing. He's like a well, new I think, thing. I think he's a Zoomer, which means that he doesn't think of this as a, uh, a facade or a put on or anything. He doesn't. He thinks of it as simultaneously real and not real. It's a performance, like like everything that Zoomers do is. But it's a performance that's understood to be is one with his also his sense of kind of reality in himself. It's like how Batman's secret identity is Bruce Wayne. Exactly. It's like Little Nas X's physical body is the secret identity for his true online self. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, do you have uh, any other thoughts on Little Nas X? Do we need to do Suez Canal stuff? Oh, that was that was my idea. The Suez Canal media, media theory, which is like you overload the system with so much that it becomes like a macro object online. So it can only be... So that's that. That's why I was frantically texting you that Little Nas X and the Suez Canal are the same thing. <laughs> right. Okay. I didn't go. I did not get that. Okay. Well, that's like a really good segue right there into our next segment, which is the content you consume to stay sane. This week, the content I consumed to stay sane were two different Adam Curtis documentaries. My brain is goddamn liquid. <laughs> yeah, see, I watched them over like two weeks and only at weekends and, and didn't spend like fast so much time binging them, which I'm glad I did because it, it allowed me to absorb them slightly better and not liquefy myself. Okay, so we have talked about this uh, this documentarian on our show before, Adam Curtis. He works for the BBC. He His shtick is basically he sits in the basement of the BBC with all of their archival footage from the last like 150 years, and he puts it together into like vague mood essays. And his newest one is called Can't Get You Out of My Head. It's six hours long. I watched an hour every night for the last week. I th- what do you, Okay, what do you think it's about? Like, what do you think is the central <laughs> thesis that it's that it's trying to say? To me, the central thesis of it is the failure of politics to rein in. Uh, I'm trying to do this without using the word systems. Um, <laughs> the systems okay, okay, actually, that we no, I can, I can, I, given power. I can, do this, I can do this better from from probably from the start, which is is broadly speaking, it is. The emergence of individualism uh, as people become individuals, but the idea that that individual leads to kind of a an ongoing failure to make things actually change because the systems are growing outside of the people before leading essentially to a a population that has little hope of change and is therefore relatively individualistic and is easily led astray by things like conspiracy theories and a political class or political classes that typically attempt to manage the situation rather than make things actually change i think yeah that sounds kind of right like the way i sort of saw it the way i sort of saw it was that it was saying that the revolutions around the world in the 60s all failed, largely for the same reason, which is capitalism. And that then produced a world of individuals. But individuals are depressed and lonely 
and not rationally acting. So we created systems, computer and otherwise, to keep individuals from acting against their own interests and the interests of societies. But then those systems became too complex for the people who are in charge of them to rein them in anymore. And now we're in this like really weird world where elected politicians and even financiers and bankers and cultural elites no longer can rein in the weird system that they've built to govern the earth. Yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. And that's why Little Nas X is so powerful (laughs) and also similar to the Suez Canal. Um, No, it's it's a good it's a good documentary. It's six hours. Um, It's only available in the UK, but I I I happen to find a a way to watch it. It's um, it's worth checking out if you can get a copy of it. I think if you liked hyper normalization, it does a really good job of addressing the criticisms of that movie while also kind of not hitting as hard because it does go deeper. Yeah, for sure. It's 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 a very long piece. And I think one of the things that I found fascinating was is probably there's probably a moment in about twenty minutes, half an hour through the very first episode, where you become clear, like, oh right, yeah, this ends with Trump. And and I, I don't think he actually shows Trump or even mentions Trump, but there's a the thing of like he says something like towards an age of individual like individuals using the system to overtake the system or whatever and it's like oh of course yeah okay so we're getting to trump this is basically adam curtis dealing with trump yeah i mean that's that's the other thing is i think like the further i get away from his documentary like when i watched it i'm like oh my god he's figured it out this is it the source code for all reality and then the further i get away from it the more i'm just like does that does that mean anything? Like, does it mean anything that like ISIS and the KKK both have their like basis in like an obscure Scottish author? I think that what he is doing is something that is, I, I, I a lot of people read him negatively as a kind of, uh, you know, red string on a, tr- on a corkboard thing. And I don't think that's totally fair because I think what he is doing is, doing an interpretation of history and he's, he's that's what he's doing he's doing an explanation of history he called it an emotional history of the world which i think is i i, I get where he's coming from on that um but what he's really doing is coming at the idea of history as complexity as an interplaying an interplay of individuals of organizations and of populations which is a really hard thing to do because like yes Typically, history is people. It is this man talked to this man. They had a falling out. Then there was a war. Or you do a different thing, which is one of those other levels, where it's like these this group, this faction, this faction fell out, and they had a war. Or this population, this population fell out. They had a war. And you can do it a few different ways, but that's broadly it. What he's doing is saying that all of this stuff is interlinked, and these structures of power distorts them. Sorry, or rather, these structures of power are distorted by other forces within them. Some of those forces come from individuals, like Jiang Qing in China. Some of those forces come from wide population things, like racism in, in America and in Europe. And some of those come from something in between, like the bankers. And I think what he's doing is basically pulling those forces together. The bankers. Yeah, to say this is a very complex thing. And I don't know that he's really giving an answer to anything so much as he's coming up with, here is a theory of a thing. Yes. Yes. I don't think he's as conspiratorial as people like make him out to be. 
I just I do think there is this urge right now, and I have this urge, and I think most people probably listening to the show have this urge too, to connect dots to make sense of why we are the way we are and why things are happening the way they're happening. And there is like a very unexamined last couple decades that are very, very confusing. And there's like a real want to like figure out like, okay, like how did we get here? And he, he does serve that need very well. And like, if you're listening to this and you think anything we're saying is not gibberish and like sounds fascinating to you, hypernormalization for American uh, listeners is available on Amazon. It's worth checking out. It's three hours long. I made my friend watch it with me at like 10 at night. <laughs> right. we, we, I got a bottle of whiskey and I was like, look, we're going to watch hypernormalization. And then I forgot that it opens with just like a bunch of people dying in some like in some skirmish. And he was like, what are we doing here? And I was like, get ready. We haven't even gotten to the good parts about Gaddafi yet. Um, I mean, this is this is like when we watched uh, was it, it was bitter. Lake, that's how yeah, that's how you first showed yeah. me Adam Curtis was after Night yeah. at the Pub. You came back. You're like, you want to watch a two hour documentary about the founding of, of Afghanistan? And I was like, sure do. So yeah, that was the content I consumed to stay sane this week. But I don't feel particularly sane. I think I, I think I'm actually sort of like realigning how my brain works. Um, I. I apologize for anyone who has to consume the content that I make in the next couple of days because I think it's all just going to be batty <laughs> and weird. Um, oh, and I also watched the new Invincible show on Amazon. Pretty good. Oh, how was that? It's good. It's a Robert Kirkman, so it's like his normal shtick. Uh, people will probably forget that, you know, Walking Dead is kind of the outlier for him. Like his other stuff is, I think, more fun and more interesting. And Invincible is really good. I, I enjoy it. What about you, Luke? What did you consume this week? Um, I don't know. I don't think I consumed all that much that was that interesting. Um, still watching uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. I don't know if you watched the most recent episode of that. So uh, I was actually on Slayer Fest '98. It's a really, really great podcast. They are currently doing a watch of Falcon Winter Soldier, and they had me on to talk about it. Uh, I I have very conflicting emotions about that show. I think I like it, but I just want more and it to be better. <laughs> yeah, at the moment, it's kind of not doing anything. Yeah, yeah, it's, like it's a little clumsy. It's a little clumsy for me. Also, uh, I thought it was fascinating that in the, the most recent one, there's a fight sequence atop uh, a, a lorry uh, that's driving, and there's uh, people jumping off and on it and stuff. And you could really see the strings of the CGI. Uh, and there may be pandemic because people haven't been in the same place for a while. But it also felt like, yeah, they've run out of money now. Like they have found the limit of what they can do with a show like this. Yeah, which is fine. Like, I mean, the scene was cool and the idea is cool, but like. I just want to see like two buddies solve a mystery. Like that's what I'm, that's what I'm into. Uh, yeah. I actually, I, I'm kind of hoping that they don't have a, an extended action sequence in every single episode. Cause that actually would be kind of annoying. Also like when in doubt, just go the daredevil route and just have it be like an absolutely brutal fight scene. Yeah. Also. Yeah. They never do that. In Marvel. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. Thank you all for those of you who came by our Patreon and listened to our movie podcast. That was very, very cool. It was great to see you guys checking it out. Um, We are continuing with our watch of the Fast and the Furious franchise. This week, it's the fourth movie, which is Fast and Furious. If you want to... God, I love the naming conventions. It's incredible. Uh, If you want to hear that, head over to patreon.com slash thecontentminds. Um... It usually goes up like a day after this. I try to space it out so you don't have to hear my voice inside of your head too often. I feel like that would be bad, you know, if they're just listening to hours of us talk. Um, 
actually, if anyone listen, if anyone listening to this has binged this show, like, please like DM me on Twitter. Uh, I'm curious, like, what that experience would even be like. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, don't do that. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's done that, let me know. I'm curious. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for supporting the show. Uh, and once again, I changed the uh, Patreon tiers. So if you wanted to support us for a year, you can. Um, if something totally insane happens to the show and we can't go for until next March, I will refund you. I promise. Um, we'll figure it out. <laughs> but it saves you some money and it and it keeps us being able to think like, okay. Do we have another year of content minds in us? I think we do, but like that could, you know, I, I, if Luke doesn't want to do this anymore one day, I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. No plans to stop doing this as I'm still, well, we're still not allowed to leave our houses. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We still got another year of coronavirus at least. So, yeah, what the heck? Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, I'll meet you in the, uh, the other show. Uh, I'll see you over there, Luke. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>